0: I ask you to turn over to John chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 17 in our time together. Father, we want to commit this time to you afresh. And Lord, we pray that you will clear our minds of other thoughts and preoccupations and just allow us to focus upon Jesus this day. If we do, and as your Spirit works in our lives we will become more like him. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I don't know if you ever had this experience at supper time. I have, with six kids. There's times when it gets... The children become so opinionated on a particular topic that I feel like I just kind of want to stand up, you know, maybe even bang my hand on the table or something and say... Quiet, you know this isn't the way it's supposed to be, and you know have one of those kind of fatherly talks that are rather direct. You know, you know what I'm saying? Have you ever had those feelings? You go like, Ah! Jesus doesn't do that when his guys are bickering and complaining amongst themselves. I want to read a passage to you from Luke's Gospel, an event that occurred prior to the event we find here in John chapter 13. But it gives you this sense of, when Jesus actually gets up and does what he does, he does it for a bunch of guys that are grumbling and complaining about who's the greatest. Listen to what Luke chapter 22 says. I'll just begin here in verse 24. The Bible says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. All right? Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call them benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Folks, Jesus says those words. But he realizes the way for the people to really hear that deeply is with one of the greatest object lessons we find in the Gospels. And it's what Jesus does next. So come with me to John 13. As we look through this passage, it's a marvelous text. And here's, I know, the challenge. If, if you've been around Christianity any period of time, you know, you've heard this one several times probably. So what I often say, it's kind of like that Kellogg's commercial, taste again for the first time. You know, as we kind of work through it and hear what God wants to do. Here's the setting, verse 1. And this is a powerful setting. Listen to what what he says. Now, before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, his hour, that moment that would encompass the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he would then depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you understand something? As Jesus sits with his beloved disciples, who he loves, he's not going to do this next act as a kind of a gotcha moment. You know what I mean? Like, I get so sick and tired of you guys, I'm going to shame you in front of all. That's not what goes on here, folks. He looks at this group. He is fully secure in who he is, isn't he? He knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going back to the Father. He loves this bunch of bickering guys. And in this moment, and as he goes to the cross, he's going to love them to the end. Do you see that? Before you have anything else, he wants you to know that everything Jesus is doing out of a deep heart of love for these guys With any good story, you got to have an inciting incident. And man, do we get it here in verse 2 to 5. Listen to what it says. And during dinner, after the devil had already put in the heart that Judas, the son son of Simon Iscariot, should betray him, knowing that the father had given him all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and he was going away to God, he got up from the dinner. Now, before I continue reading, here's the problem. You know what he did. But you hear those words? Jesus is fully secure in his mission before God the Father. Jesus also knows that that guy right next to him in that place of honor at that meal... Judas Iscariot is going to betray him. And the text says all power has been entrusted to him. The father who he has entrusted entrusts it all to him. You think about it. What could Jesus have done in that moment? All power is his. He knows where this whole thing is going. And he knows this guy next to him is going to betray him. That the devil has put that into his mind heart what would you have done with that kind of power right you may or may have put that guy in his place in front of all for goodness sakes but instead in the midst of a bunch of bickering disciples one who will betray him one who will deny him and the others will all flee jesus loves them to the end is that not amazing to you? I, I, I sometimes can't get my arms around the incredible love of God. Which is probably why Paul says in Ephesians 3, just try to plumb the depths and the breadth and the height and the width of this great love. Right? And we spend a lifetime trying to do that. Jesus stands up and notice what he does. He doesn't act, which, frankly, is going to bring some of the greatest embarrassment to these guys. Um, just, just to kind of give you a sense, I didn't fully agree, agree with the rendition that we saw there on video. It was, it was pretty close, but probably not quite exactly correct. Uh, did, did you see how they were kind of sitting in a U-shape? The, the, the tables, and, and, you know, we, we think of tables, you know, their tables are not that far off the ground, and, and they're probably on mats. And, and often the way you would sit at a table, so if you think of this kind of U-shaped table, you, you would kind of lean often on your left elbow to, and be facing the meal so you could eat the food, and your feet would be fanned out around you. Do you see? So you can see how feet would be fanned out around them, which, it may, which then make it easy for Jesus to actually wash these feet. So that, that's kind of the scene. Here's the problem. Sometimes when we think of washing feet, it has a kind of a special aura to it. There, there are churches in our day that regularly have you wash your feet, but you know when they're going to wash them. So it's like on Sunday, we're doing communion and washing feet. Guess what you're going to do Saturday night? You better believe it maybe a pedicure or whatever, but I mean, you're gonna be ready for that thing come Sunday, right? I mean, you know, come on, wouldn't you? I mean, you know, I, like, I, I get that. You, the last thing you wanna do is pull off socks and people go, ooh. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, you're just not gonna do that. That's not their world. And so we have, sometimes we have this kind of order, like, oh, this is really wonderful. These guys are walking on the street. Their feet are dusty and dirty, There's excrement around. So they stink for a whole variety of reasons. Which is why in antiquity, if Tim is my peer, I'm not even going to wash his feet. I'm going to get one of my slaves, if I invite Tim over, to wash his feet and wash my feet. I'm not washing his feet either. And in antiquity... There are rare times when peer-to-peer washes feet. It happens, but not very often. And it normally creates an uproar. I can't find one example in all the Greco-Roman Jewish literature. could be wrong on this, but, but in my own research and study, I can't find any example wherever a superior washes the feet of an inferior. Once in a while, you'll find it this way. It's always supposed to work this way. And here's the one example where it goes this way. Do you see? So this was a scandal. Jesus was being inappropriate. He had a way of doing that, didn't he? Why are you... Being a Jew, talking to me, a Samaritan woman. You don't do that. That's inappropriate in the culture. John the Baptist. Why am I baptizing you when you should be baptizing me? It's inappropriate. Why is he eating with sinners? It's inappropriate. Do do you see? I mean, all through the Gospels... Jesus just turns, takes the culture and turns it on its head. And, and, and so when Jesus engages here, and what I liked on, on the video there, I thought it was really good because all the guys were like, that was good. I, I think they could have probably even done it more. I think they were just totally shocked. So knowing all this, verse 4, he got up from the dinner laid aside his outer garments. Did you feel a little bit uncomfortable when you saw the guy there acting as Jesus take off his outer garment? Yeah, well, good, because you should. (laughs) Do you see? He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it around himself, poured water into the basin, began to wash the feet of the disciples, to wipe them dry with the towel, which he had tied around them. Now, like any good story, there needs to be some growing tension. And man, do we get that with Peter. Don't you love Peter? Peter says what you and I are thinking, but we not have the guts to say ourselves. And so I watch Peter, and he says, I go, oh, little Peter, you shouldn't have said that, but I would have said that. And, and, and it just doesn't, it, it just, it brings us, it really helps us. And here's what you find. In verses six to 11, you find this encounter between Jesus and Peter. And what's funny is every time Peter speaks, it's wrong. Three times, it's three rounds. And every time he speaks, he blows it. You know, at some point, somebody should have elbowed him and said, you know what? Yeah, like, you're done. Like, you're done. So notice, uh, Notice what what he says. Then he came to Simon Peter, verse 6. Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Which was code for this is inappropriate. (laughs) Okay? Like, I mean, it was as close as you get to say, what he's going to say here in just a second, like, Lord, it's not supposed to work this way. And I love Jesus' response. What I am doing, you do not understand now. But you will understand after these things. He's, in verse 12, he's going to pick up on that in a little bit more detail. But that's not good enough for Peter. So Jesus says, Peter, trust me. No. <laughs> okay? Right, look at what he says. Peter says to him, you, I don't care about this all understanding stuff, but you will never, ever wash my feet. And honestly, folks, it's not because he hates Jesus, right? He loves Jesus. I mean, he was just thinking, you know, I'm going to stand for my Lord on this one, even against my Lord, which is a little bit of an oxymoron. but That's what he does. Look at how Jesus responds. If I do not wash you, you do not have a share with me. Peter didn't fully understand what that whole thing meant symbolically, but he knew it wasn't good. Because here's what you have to love about Peter. With all of his foibles, with all of his problems, he desperately loves Jesus. So even when he's saying, Lord, you're never going to do this, it's not because he hates the Lord. He loves him. It was wrong, but, but, but he loves him. And, 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 and when Jesus says, you won't have a share with me, Man, Peter's thinking, there's nothing worse than that. Because in John 6, when everybody was leaving Jesus, and he looked at Peter and he said, will you two leave? Peter said, where else would we go? You're the only one with the words of eternal life. He got that. So Peter's in a panic mode. (laughs) So, So he's just thinking, no, the last thing I want to do is be separated from Jesus in any way. Verse 9, Lord... Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. (laughs) You see, Lord, like, can I crawl into that basin? (laughs) Like, with my whole body? And Jesus says this. The one who has been bathed does not have a need to be washed, except his feet, but is completely clean. You are all clean, but but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. Because of this, he said, you are not all clean. Folks, here's what I want you to see. It's really, really important. When Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, he was not merely washing their feet as an example for them. He was, and he's going to get to that he was also doing something much deeper. Do you realize this? He was picturing for them their desperate need for him at all times and in all ways. He was saying, Peter, you don't need to be bathed. They knew what bathing was. According to John 11, they would have had to go, go through ceremonial bathing for, for the Passover. So, so they understand that where you would actually go down into the water and be immersed and come back up again. They, 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 they got that. And Jesus is saying, though, no, spiritually, all of you, except Judas, have been bathed. Because of your relationship with me, I have purified you as a whole. You need me for that. But you also need me for that daily and day in and day out cleansing. And so you don't have to hop into the basin altogether. You're clean. You've been bathed spiritually. You're in relationship with me. What you need is that daily cleaning of the feet. You need me every hour. Isn't, isn't that? how we live our lives. This time when you come before him and you say, I'm undone, I'm a sinner, I could never find my way, I could never come into relationship with God, and you trust in Jesus and him alone. And in that moment, you are cleansed, bathed, pure, forgiven, saved. But every day of our lives, we need his help and his assistance don't we you can't ever get away from jesus so even in this act he is picturing something even deeper this one who has so loved us that he would die for us and he would continue to intercede for us until he comes back isn't that amazing Verses 12 to 17. Jesus then is going to explain this act and how it should impact what they do. So look at what he says. Then when he washed their feet and had taken up his garments and reclined again, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? (laughs) What do you think they would say on that one? Uh, fuzzy at best, all right? And I want you to notice something. This is powerful. Look at what he says in verses 13 to 15. I want to read that, and then i want to I'll focus on, on verse 16. You call me teacher and Lord, and you speak correctly for I am. Jesus was not denying the fact that he had this ultimate position and status of teacher and Lord. He said, you said that, and you're exactly correct. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm really not that wonderful. Yes, he is. (laughs) Yes, he is. Thus, if I, your Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of one another. For I, I gave to you an example in order that just as I did to you, you also should do. How do you think that hit them? I'm not washing that guy's feet. I mean, they're really dirty. They had just gotten done saying who was the greatest. I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. And now Jesus turns the whole world upside down and says, you instead come under them. And there is no act that is so demeaning that you shouldn't do it for your brother or sister in Christ. They're reeling. They're they're thinking of all kinds of things. And then he says this in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, when Jesus says truly, truly twice, that's a good. That, that's something that means yo, listen up. Okay, it's very important. Okay? Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. I was talking to Sherry about this yesterday, my wife. And um, I couldn't help thinking. When Doug Finkbeiner looks at somebody, another brother and sister in Christ, and said, says, I'm not willing to do that for them. In that moment, I, the slave of Jesus, am making myself greater than he. Do you realize that? Doug, you are never Greater than me, I am Lord, Master, Savior, King, Messiah, and all the other stuff, God, everything. And when I stand up and say, yeah, but I'm not going to do what you do, I'm saying I'm greater than him. Because if the greatest does it, what does it mean for me? That's just like major conviction to me. I mean, that is a a kind in-your-face statement. And so Jesus says this in verse 17. He now has explained, he asked them before, do you understand? Verse 17, if you understand these things, guys, it's pretty hard to miss it. I just explained it to you. You are blessed if you should do them. You know that song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Can I adjust the words a little bit? Jesus loves me, this I know, for his incredible servanthood tells me so. Isn't that what John is saying? At the beginning, John 13, 1, he has loved them to the end. And he loves me so much that he gives me this example of servanthood, not merely that I can bask in the fact that he has loved me, yes, but that I might do as he has done. I was thinking about this. Jesus breaks social protocol when he washes their feet. And I don't know if this is the right word for it. It's probably not the best word, but I would argue that Jesus breaks cosmic protocol in the incarnation. Doesn't he? Here's the cosmos, the world, the universe, and God, as Philippians 2 tells me, Christ says, I'm not going to hold on to the, he's always God, a very God, but I'm not going to demand, hey, I want to be the boss here. Rather, he is willing to impoverish himself and to become a servant, and not just a servant, but a man, and not just a man, but be willing to die, and not just be willing to die anyway, but be willing to die on a cross where people would think it's a shameful way to die. And Jesus descends into greatness because God exalts him. But do you see, that is breaking cosmic protocol from a human perspective. I don't remember if it was Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins. One of them were arguing against Christianity. They're both atheists and their argument was no god in his right mind would ever do that and that's true if richard dawkins was god but god goes down 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 to save us. And in John 13, he gives us another picture, picture of that in breaking social protocol. And he tells us, in light of what I've done, is there anything in this world that you're not willing to do for a fellow believer? Because if there is, you are greater than I. That is an indictment. Can I tell you where this hit me? It's telling Sherry... Yesterday, I was thinking about this yesterday morning. And, and I thought about the passage on husbands. Love your wives as Christ has loved the church, right? And, and given himself for it. Am I, am I serving Sherry so that she can blossom in everything God wants her to be? Not as much as Jesus... Can I give you a real painful one? It's been my struggle. It's been my major struggle for the last year and a half, <laughs> a little bit longer. We took in my mother in law into our home because her health is good, but her mind is failing. And, um, I can just. And she's, she's not a bad person. She's a sweet person in so many ways, honestly. So, you met her. You, you know, you say she's sweet. I, I'd say you're right. So, and, and not here to bash mother-in-laws, you know. But there are some idiosyncrasies that normally surface at supper time when my children are present. That take a meal that begins to be very comfortable and restful, and brings tension. Into the supper table which as a father I don't like at all and there's times when frankly she really annoys me and I'd be happy if one of the other children were to let her <laughs> live with them that's the truth that's the truth I mean, I'm just telling you man full disclosure not full but pretty full <laughs> I won't be full okay And I was thinking about this passage. I was thinking about, what are some applications for the people out there? Husbands who love their wives better. Parents with children. Children with parents. Siblings with siblings. In the church, outside of the church, neighbors, workplace, all the stuff. The Spirit of God said, how about your mother-in-law? Can't we just talk about Sherry? You know what I mean? I mean, the Sherry thing, I really, I'm happy to invest in that one. So I don't know who your person is, but I know who Jesus wants to work on in my life. Do I love it? Can't say I love it. But I need it because if Jesus has loved us that much, and is willing to do whatever for us. How can I, the slave, refuse to do what the master does? I want to read just one more verse to you, and then I'll let you go. This this passage, like, blows me away. It doesn't make any sense at one level. but I love it. In in Luke chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus is picturing... His return. And, 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 and the reward that he will give his own when he comes back. And he pictures it in a master-slave relationship. But listen to what he says about the master. This is unbelievable to me. Listen. It, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Okay, I get that. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve will have them recline at table and will come and wait on them. Whoa, 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 whoa. Like I thought this servant thing by Jesus was only like an earthly thing. Like once he's exalted, that baby is done. Or is it? He will forever be the servant Lord. And I don't know what that looks like in glory. But you will look at him and saying, the most majestic, the, the God-man, the king, the Messiah, the Lord. He continues to serve. I, I don't even understand that. I don't, I don't understand that. But man, I love it. How can we do less? Father. There is no possible way we can love the way that you have loved. I feel sometimes like all I can do is observe it from a distance. Will you enable us through your life-giving spirit? Will you bring specific people to our mind... Who you will then empower us as we bask in your glorious love for us. People that we can then serve in whatever way you call us to. God, please continue to do this good work in our lives that we might show forth the glory of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.